Between Worlds, The Life of Mihal O'Sullivan explores the life and legacy of the pioneering Irish composer and academic O'Sullivan, passed in 2018 after a life filled with groundbreaking developments as a composer. Between Worlds features contributions from some of his former UCC students, Mary Mitchell Inglesby and Mel Mercier among them, as well as from long-time musical collaborators Eira O'Linard, Neil Martin and David Brophy. But central to the documentary is the input from Mihal's wife, Helen Phelan, who provides the narrative thread throughout giving a rare insight into the life and career of the great man. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined this evening on the programme by both Helen Phelan and the documentary maker Maggie Bratnock. And Maggie, I'll, I'll start with you because I don't know whether this was a little bit of local pride on your own part. But we get a, we get a fair um, revelation, and it's not a revelation, but we get a fair exposition, I suppose, of the time Michal spent in on Rin in the Gaeltuck there. Uh, uh, was that a personal choice or were you just delighted to point out the influence that that, I think it was about a year he spent there, in fact, wasn't it? The influence that that had had it on was. him as a composer. I'm delighted that you said that we spent a good bit of time there because um, ever since the press release went out and people locally heard I was making a documentary, I've been uh, cornered at the school gate and cornered in the local pub as to all the things that, that Hall did and Noreen did when they lived in Unrhyne yeah. for the year. So um, the fact that there's about three minutes or four minutes that made it into the documentary uh, is probably not long enough for local people. But... <laughs> So thank you for getting me out of the yeah, well, dark hole if that, if that, <laughs> in your first question. Yeah, if, if that three minutes wasn't there, you would not be going back home for a long, long time. But in fact, don't, no. we, don't we get a great song? And I, I think it might be more than three or four minutes in, by my yes. counting. But we get a great song from Unrin, really, uh, sung for us. Who is that that's yeah. singing there? That's Kiron um, uh, O'Gallivan, yeah. uh, who's, who's a local channel singer, obviously, uh, studied in UCC and, and and has a doctorate now as well. But yeah, I guess, look, that's the connection that I would have had earlier on from my childhood to, to I suppose, Irish culture mm. and yeah. music and Michal and, and Noreen, in fact, I suppose, kind of danced around my childhood without me even knowing it for many years because of the year they did spend here. And that local pride was never far from sounds or or sights, um, yeah. and particularly in in my grandmother's house of Mihal. So yes, I suppose yeah, it was a a happiness then that yeah. that, that 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 he had that connection yeah. with Unrhyne. Yeah. And I don't think I would have um, been, I suppose, as honoured and as privileged to to study him and uh, and to follow his career, other than that 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 glee that he spent in Unrowing. I hope that answers the question. It, it does answer the question. I, I thought for a minute there that you were going to get yourself into the trouble with the people of Clonmel when you if you started to claim him as one of Unrowing's own. So we we better leave it before you land yourself in a different kettle of fish and, and a, a boiling pot of water. I, I'll come to you now, Helen. Uh, the, the the title of the documentary here says so much to me. I know there was a there was a 1995 album, if I'm right, certainly mid 90s at some stage where where Mihal had an album called Between Two Worlds. And I remember at the time, and people would often say, oh yeah, this, that's, he, can, he can span between the world of traditional music and the world of classical music. I much rather the term that's used for this documentary, Between Worlds, because he wasn't just between two places. He was in the middle of a whole bundle of influences. 
Uh, he he was he was without a doubt, and there's you know there's something that he he said himself very often later in his life that always stays with me, which is he said that you know many people they 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 come to the crossroad and they pass through, while as he found himself drawn to living at the crossroad, you know, holding the tension between choices, you know, so whether that was between. Irish music, classical music, other world mm. music traditions between composing and educating. The space in between is where he felt most at home. And and that's where the creativity lay for him. Was there was there a sense of any between spaces uh, early on in his life? We go right back to his childhood in, in Clonmel and we see that for the most part through the, the eyes of his brother John, but also through the eyes of Noreen Niran a, a little bit later on. Um what what kind of background did he have in terms of music at home? I mean, he, he started very much, and John, John does this very beautifully in the documentary, you know, like so many young children being sent up the road to play the piano. And, you know, they, there would have been music at home in terms of his mother and father loving music, mm. but not playing music. So he got that classical piano education. But, of course, his teacher was also a Kaylee Vamper, which brought him in the side door into traditional music. As a teenager, he formed a rock band and then discovers in fifth year that, you know, there's a subject called music for the leaving cert. So all of those influences were there, I think, to just they were almost like seeds Mm. planted very early on. And I think led him to that in-between space of having had exposure to all these musical worlds, wanting to find a way to bring them all with him. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lovely sequence. I think it's Earl Leonard speaks about, uh, or not possibly John. Who? How would Earl know this? It'd be John, who would have seen his brother John, who would have seen this um, very early on. That the piano teacher, I think, it was after five or six weeks, said, "You've got a genius on your hands here." To the to his parents, and there was a piano put into the house, and that uh, where where many parents with children learning piano lessons might have to force them to sit down. She couldn't get Mihal's mother couldn't get Mihal away from the piano. He'd be at it at breakfast time he'd be at it straight first thing when he came home from school in the evening so obviously it, it was it was there how, how important Helen <laughs> was the piano to him as an instrument ah uh, it was his voice you know it was his voice in the world without a doubt and I think one of the things that I love about this documentary and I know Maggie and myself had many many conversations about this early on was you know there's there's something about trying to tell somebody else's story. Mm. And even though all of us can give our perspective on that story, you know, Michal chose to tell his story through music and that was primarily through the piano. So having his music at the heart of this was was so mm. important, you know, but it was it was a complex instrument for him because it was also outside of the tradition yeah. that he loved and that was another in-between space I think Yeah in fact I have a clip of him talking about in some ways and many this happens to many instrumentalists the kind of the instrument that they, they play it, it's almost it's just chosen accidentally just a, a kind of a moment of fate where that's the instrument that's put into your hand or in the case of Michal the instrument that you put sitting down in front of let's listen to him talking about the kind of challenges that the piano gave him when it came to the sort of music that he wanted to explore
piano was my instrument because that's the instrument I took up when I was young and, you know, I, I suppose formed a relationship with it. And later on, after that, I came to traditional music and found myself with the wrong instruments, so to speak. So I was, I suppose, uh, set with this dilemma. So what I'm playing is actually a working out of that dilemma. It's a wonderful way of putting it. That's Michal, Michal O'Sullivan when they are speaking in the documentary that we're speaking about the scene between worlds, the life of Michal O'Sullivan, uh, Michal's wife, Helen Phelan, and the director of the documentary, Maggie Brahnock, with me this evening. It's a wonderful way of, of putting it that he kind of was working it out, working things out at the piano. That's what he's doing. But I, I wondered, Maggie, you as a documentary maker watching him, there's a sequence, a couple of sequences in it where he's interviewing other musicians his ease, the simplicity with which he holds those interviews. It's humbling to see how skilled he is at simply just talking to these musicians about their music. Yeah, and I think that that's probably one of the things that I was really interested in, in Hall as a character, as a human being and as an ambassador, was that way where when you see those um, interviews, even in their entirety, or those clips from Boston College, mm. and when you see his, mm. in, I don't, it's it's more than ease, it's actual genuine interest, yeah. and it's it's trying to grab. You know, if you're if you kind of fall in love with a piece of art or you fall in love with something, and you actually try to eat it up, and <laughs> I think if uh, that's the way I I sensed when I saw him looking at those that are chatting to 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 those fiddle players, it was that. He was in awe of of those fiddle players who held part of our tradition that were at that point uh, based in the states, and that like that's just incredible for for to have had someone before it was trendy to archive yeah. me hall or, or or it was cool to be doing it me hall me hall had started it he had opened that door and that to me. It's just, it's just incredibly powerful. Yeah, that, the, those interviews, and we only get little clips of them, Helen. They're, they're really, they really show us a side to me, Hall, that maybe lots of people haven't seen. But you would have seen this uh, uh, with him in the in the World Academy, in the Irish World Academy as well, in Limerick. He had that facility not just with these established musicians that he was talking to in the United States on a visit out there at one stage along the web, but uh, m- so many students talk about how inspiring a. Uh, uh, a teacher he was. Uh, he he loved he loved teaching. He loved students. And there's a there's a very interesting clip I think of Irle in the documentary where he says, you know, there was he 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 had to make a decision about how much of his life mm. he would give to making music and how much he would give to helping other people make music. And that was another creative tension. There were at least three points I know over his life, twice in Cork, once in Limerick, where he really thought of leaving. And I think what kept him was the realization that it takes a lot of energy to stay with education, but my God, you get a lot of energy, you know, being in that space of creative music making with students and young people like the there's a tremendous energy in that and I think he loved that and mm. he you know he he's he was he was at his best almost when he had three yeah. things to do at the same time and and all of them were the better for it yeah well you're talking about three things to do at the same time I have a running underneath us here I've just started um Ihanulug playing in the background and you can hear it kind of starts out with you know his kind of signature piano style but let's hear what he does as it moves a little bit into this traditional tune and the different styles that come in Thank you. 
There is many a jazz pianist would give his or her left and right hand to be able to improvise like that uh, on the piano. That's Michal Osulawan moving from, he'd already taken the tradition to a new place in the way he, the kind of syncopated rhythms that he brings into the, the, the Irish music itself. But then that move into the world of jazz and the walking bass on, on the left hand, uh, Helen Phelan. I mean, I, I presume you were party to hearing all sorts of improvisations of that nature at home. Oh, I mean, just listening to that, you know, it just sums up. And you know, people often say that he, that he, you know, he loved bringing all these different musical influences. But, you know, he also loved the different ways of making music. You know, he loved that classical approach to music, which is like there is a piece by Beethoven and it is written. It's on a score and it's almost like this mm. sacred object. And then switch to, as Maggie was saying, the traditional fiddler, the jazz pianist and they're composing in flight. They're composing as they perform, as much through their ears and their fingers as through their eyes. And for him, like the 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 adrenaline rush was, how could you bring all of those together? And that is mm. the river of his sound. Yeah, yeah. And you make a lovely. You you use the river as a wonderful metaphor in terms of your own relationship with Mihal, and in fact his own life and how the river was a, a piece, a place of of great um, ease and 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 comfort for him. In fact, Maggie, I, I, I'm wondering how much. I know you knew about on Rhine and Michal's connection to that part of the world. What did you find out in the making of this documentary? Because he is a fascinating man. Was, did you unearth a whole load of stuff that you were blissfully unaware of? Um, I probably did. It was probably all there somewhere. Yes, oh. I think. I think um, the the incredible. Um, I think what what really shook me um, always about Michal was that place where I used to watch him. I started out my career um, as a runner and it's just being with a very small job in, in a big television factory as such and how he made me feel like I had the most important job in the room. Yet I was probably only serving tea or taking a cable out of the way. And I guess looking at him from those eyes, and I'm going back 25 years ago, um, and seeing how helpful he would have been to me back then without really knowing anything about me mm. and going as a young kid starting out there's something more to that man yeah he's yeah. not your regular musician he's not your regular educator and i suppose that was the curiosity to to dig deeper and to see and helen and the entire family were so open to allowing me in to yeah. dig and i think i think the the uncovering for me, and I think within the documentary is the various worlds that that he he did encounter, and how when you dug a bit deeper, and if you yeah, read be yeah. between the lines, even within the the documentary, you see how meaningful and how how um, how much yeah. he had achieved, and the, the way more layers that were to him. Yeah, and and, and great that we we do get the perspectives of the entire family, as you say, his two sons with Noreen, Noreen O'Neill, herself, yourself, Helen, and your I think your own son is there in the background at one stage as well. I think it was probably very important to all of you that all of you were present in the telling of this story. I think absolutely, and you know it it, it helped us enormously 
you know, the story Maggie's telling there that Maggie, Maggie's family knew Michal and Noreen, that Maggie had this this professional relationship with Michal. And, you know, I think it was very important to us that everyone in the family felt they could tell their take on the story, but also they could tell it through the medium they felt most comfortable with. So whether that was music or poetry or story or through the natural world, that that people could use their own voice to tell their own story. Because at the end, each of us only has our own glimmer of, Of you know, the central story, which is really, I think, told through the music. And I'm I'm going to finish up by letting a piece of music tell precisely that story. Um, I don't know which of you can tell me about the the version of Bandov and Glana that we get here. Did you did you see this happening, Helen? I mean, it's a wonderful arrangement of the the Shanno song with Kenneth Edge, I think, uh, on on soprano sax, isn't it? I uh, sure it's in, in, incredible, and you know, I think that that movement from you know the 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 Shanno's presentation of the music um, into the Irish Chamber Orchestra was very much Maggie's vision of connecting again those parts of Michal's musical world, the the well, the source, the tradition that he always went back to. And then mm. the way he could take a song like that and through his own kind of alchemy uh, with, with, you know, the Irish Chamber Orchestra, whom he, he worked with throughout his life and the extraordinary uh, Ken Edge, you know, trans, transform yeah. that into that world, wordless song. Yeah, well, we'll finish by listening to that. Thank you so much, Helen, for being with us this evening and also to you, Maggie Brannock. I'll give details of when people can see the documentary as we listen to this piece of music. And if you want to hear it in full, you can watch the documentary to get just that. Biandov on Glana. Indeed, the soprano saxophone playing there of Kenneth Edge in that arrangement of Band of Anglana. The Irish Chamber Orchestra playing alongside Kenneth and that an arrangement by Michal O'Sullivan. Helen Phelan and Maggie Brahnock speaking to me about Michal O'Sullivan and Between Worlds, The Life uh, of Michal O'Sullivan documentary, which is airing on RTE One television tonight at five past ten. And I'm staying with the world of music. I'm staying with the Irish Chamber Orchestra, uh, in fact, as well, because I'm going to talk about this very familiar piece of music. Unmistakable opening there to Vivaldi's Four Seasons, the Allegro, the first movement from Spring, and that in a in a, f- a performance featuring Janine Jensen, very famous recording from two thousand and four that lots of people were raving about. And when Catherine Hunker said she was coming on to speak with us this evening, she said, "Let's listen to that recording if we're going to play bits and pieces from it as we go along." So that is what we're doing. Twenty twenty three marks the three hundredth anniversary of the first publication of Vivaldi's Four Seasons in the intervening three centuries. 
these concertos have become amongst the most popular and enduring works in the classical music canon. In fact, Nigel Kennedy's 1989 recording with the English Chamber Orchestra sold over 3 million copies worldwide and it remains one of the greatest selling classical albums of all time. Next month, on January the 20th, Music for Galway presents Vivaldi's Four Seasons at the Town Hall Theatre in Galway City Centre, performed by the Irish Chamber Orchestra in a programme that also includes Piazzolla's Four Seasons of Buenos Aires. Oh yeah, you would want to be playing that after Sunday's match, wouldn't you? The concert is part of the uh, Galway Midwinter Festival. Delighted that violinist Catherine Hunker, leader of the Irish Chamber Orchestra, joins me uh, on the line now. Catherine, I mean, it really is, it's quite extraordinary just how popular Vivaldi's Four Seasons uh, is right now. Has that always been the the case? Was it always thought of as one of Vivaldi's greatest works? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, obviously I'm not sure how things were in Vivaldi's time. Mm. I don't expect that, that he realised, I would be surprised if he realised how, how enduring it would be. But there's something very infectious about it, isn't there? Yeah, certainly, and, and, and particularly when you listen to that opening movement, which is immediately recognisable, I think, to you know, anybody with even a cursory knowledge of classical music. But, you know, poor Al Vivaldi gets awful stick about having written, I don't know how many hundred, six or seven hundred concertos, um, but all of them sounding pretty much the same. You couldn't say that. <laughs> for the four seasons, for the, the three no, movements. There are 12 different movements here. They are absolutely and totally different from each other. Yeah. And, you know, he wrote, because um, he himself wrote sonnets. Well, we think, I say we, mm. that like people think that, that he wrote the sonnets. But there are little poems that go with the music. And that's what's so special about this, is that above our music is written little descriptions of what we have to be. So the bit you just heard there mm. is spring, and then the birds are singing. Yeah, yeah. So when, when yeah, and you can hear, balum, balum, balum. it's just that's the birds. And so we're always depicting things. And I think that that is that's why it's so lovable. This music because it's it jumps off the page at you. It's like it's like drawing pictures with with our instruments. Yeah, because uh, as you say, that the particular one, the, the movement that we just heard, the little poem at the top of it is "Festive spring has arrived. The birds saluted with their happy song," and that's precisely what we hear in the piece of music. It's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, it? yeah, it does what it says on the tin. It does what it says on the poem at the top of the page. Type of thing. <laughs> is that very useful for you? You know, for you and the orchestra members to, and, and I suppose the conductor when you're kind of at the point of rehearsing to actually look at those sonnets and to see how that they open up the music for you Yeah, well we don't have a conductor so I'm mm. the conductor with the violin and and those sonnets are the music so it's not even that we use them as a, as a tool that's not, that's the starting point so, so okay, here we need to crack the ice so how are we going to make this music sound like we're cracking the uh, we're cracking the ice? Mm. That's in, in the winter, obviously. This is not making a gin and tonic or anything. <laughs> it's like that's later on. And so everything, which like how are are we truly depicting that this this um, idea or image in the way we play? Let's have a and li- that is the best l- fun I have to say. Yeah, I would I would I would have thought so. Let's have a, let's listen to a, a little bit of winter since that is where we are right now. What does it say as yeah. we go into the Largo movement? What is the what is oh, the little I poetic this suggestion? One. This is this is a smug somebody has a tad smug. It says to spend happy and quiet days near the fire while outside the rain soaks hundreds of others. 
Isn't that marvellous? Yes, clearly Vivaldi. And you know that feeling, you know that feeling, which which we'll all admit to, really, when, when you've just managed to get out of the bad weather and you're cosy and warm and you're just, ha, I yeah. got out of it. Well, we know what that feels like. Here's what it sounds like, according to Vivaldi. Largo movement there from Vivaldi's Four Seasons and Vivaldi's Four Seasons is one of the pieces that the Irish Chamber Orchestra will be performing as part of the Galway Midwinter Festival and Catherine Hunka, director and leader of the Irish Chamber Orchestra with me on the, on the line this evening. It's it's interesting, you mentioned the rain there and the thousands outside. It's lovely how he, he have the, the lovely warmth of inside, I suppose, by the bold yeah. instruments and then you've all that pizzicato going on in the background which I guess the plucked, exactly. the plucked strings um, is the rain exactly yeah isn't that brilliant but to, to do something that I suppose it sounds like programmatic where he's he literally is describing the thing in sound was that unusual for this period uh, of music well I think it would have been one of the possibly even the first time that a composer did that to actually start with the poems and mm. out of that comes the music. So it was, I mean, it's incredible that he was doing that. He was probably told he was mad by all his friends. Yeah. yeah. But, but he wasn't. Yeah, it'll never, it, that'll never take it. They, they were probably <laughs> saying to him at the time. And exactly. do you think, you know, I, I was doing that because it is often that, that Vivaldi is dismissed as, you know, writing the same concerto 600 times or whatever number of concertos <laughs> it is that he wrote. Um, are the, are the, the, the concerti that make up the Four Seasons, do you think they are very different from the, the rest, the other body of his work? Do they stand out in a particular way for you? God, you know, um, it's almost impossible to know because they're so, in, they're so part of me now. You know, just I just have them in my ears. For I've had them in my ears since I was small. But I think that the the main difference is that they depict something so very clear. So everything, everything has a definite um, direction just for that image. And his, in his other pieces, it's it's uh, they're they're as rhythmic and as exciting and contrasting in colours. But they don't have that element. But you know, this this is full of it's like the rock and roll of their of their time. So it's very. <laughs> It's really very like massive bass lines and and real mm. head bash time, and that is the case with lots of his music. The other so thing, there are lots of... I'm saying the other the other aspect of Vivaldi that is worthy of notice. I mean, we all know of his, or many of us know of his association with the the Ospedale. This this I suppose orphanage, effectively, it was for for young girls and women, where he really empowered yes. these young girls and women uh, at the time. Yeah with music yes. amazing it's amazing isn't it yeah so he was he was teaching music in an orphanage and uh yeah i mean wouldn't it be great to talk to him about his work now but we can't do that but i says it's amazing with um to think where you know where we are now that he was doing that role with that role then and so also the, yeah, the, the nature of the music that he was teaching them i mean he was composing the music for them i'm sure like many he's a good teacher he could adjust what he was presenting to the to the students in terms of their ability but I'm sure there were students there who were playing his music as as written the way you're playing it today yeah I bet there were 
God, there's a film to be made there, isn't there? There certainly is a film bursting out to be made. I, I, I hear you are starring and directing it already, um, Catherine. <laughs> alongside alongside the, the four seasons of Vivaldi, you're playing the four seasons of Buenos Aires, from our yeah. part of it, from Astor Piazzolla. Um, you chose the right... Yeah. Would you have had a French... Would you have been looking for French seasons if the results of Sunday's match had been different? <laughs> About that connection till now. Well, there you but, go. But yes, it's gonna. <laughs> but um, oh, that's those. That music is so different um, to the Vivaldi, and yet it works really well side by side. So we'll do, you know, we do it, we do it side by side in an evening. We do Vivaldi first, and then we do Piazzolla. Some people like to do it alternately, mm. which I've done as well. But I think we're going to do one than the other, and yeah. it's so sultry that the Piazzolla is is sultry. Um, hot um, climate. It's really it's fantastic contrast to the to the rhythmic fresh beat mm. of of the Vivaldi. Yeah, and I suppose maybe there'll be there'll be a little bit they'll be looking for something a little bit more sultry after uh, Sunday celebrations. The Argentinians in in, in the in the in the audience <laughs> on Sunday. But I remember uh, it's a couple of years back now at this stage that yourself and the uh, the um, accordion player Dermot Dunn were speaking to me and you yeah. had you had one of the movements of Vivaldi with a little bit of Piazzolla stuck into the middle of it. Are you, are you, or is that a little private special encore that might be held in reserve <laughs> for Sunday's concert or for the concert coming up? Well, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen. That's the that's the most fun is when you just don't know. Like you like we might quote one in, in the other. Mm. Oh, that right. could happen. That could yeah, happen. Yeah, you never know. Okay, well, we, the people will have to go along yeah, and listen to find out. We've had a couple of uh, Vivaldi pieces now. We'll finish up with a section from the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires um, uh, to, to, to give us a taste of that as well. But thanks for being with us this evening, uh, Catherine, and I'll give out details of the event in Galway after we listen to a little bit of this. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Yes, and it does move between the sultry and the rather rhythmic. Um, the rather rhythmic, I think, a little bit closer to the Buenos Aires that we saw over the weekend on the television, for sure. That is the Four Seasons of Buenos Aires, the music of Astor Piazzolla and another of the pieces that Catherine Hunker and the Irish Chamber Orchestra will be performing at the Town Hall Theatre in Galway. The concert takes place on January the 20th as part of the Midwinter Festival, brought to you by Music for Galway. The programme will feature Vivaldi's Four Seasons, as we heard, 300 years old in 2023 and also features the piece that we heard a little bit of there The Four Seasons of Buenos Aires by Astor Piazzolla. Lots more in the Midwinter Festival in Galway that we- that weekend, January the 20th through until the 22nd and you can find out full details on musicforgalway.ie
When the National Gallery received a donation of watercolours and drawings by the painter J.M.W. Turner from the English collector Henry Vaughan, this gift came with a stipulation that the watercolours be exhibited every year free of charge for the month of January when the light is at its weakest. In accordance with Vaughan's wishes, the National Gallery will once again display the watercolours starting on the 1st of January. Delighted to be joined by Jess Fahey in studio this evening to uh, open up the, that particular collection for us a, a little bit further. Tell me a bit about Henry Vaughan. It's it's an incredible gift, really, to, to hand over to, it was, to hand over to the gallery, Jess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when it was gifted in 1900, the uh, press at the time, you know, claimed just how unusual it was for Dublin to get such a mm. gift. Dublin was kind of seen as sort of backwater at the time. But Henry Vaughan was very typical of that kind of Victorian philanthropist. And he was interested in... Um, I suppose creating a better society by having culture for everyone. He himself was born into a kind of new moneyed family. Mm. His father had made an absolute fortune uh, through hat manufacturing and he was about 19 when he became, you know, this incredibly wealthy man and he started then collecting various types of art but through perhaps his relationship with people like John Ruskin and others he became interested in contemporary art and in particular collecting Mm. watercolours and drawings. I suppose in some ways he, he was doing for um, the visual arts what uh, uh, is it Henry or John? Well, Henry Wood, isn't it? Who did for the proms with the, yes. for music the same kind of thing. The idea was, no, you can come in and stand and, and watch this. And, and even if you don't have the money to pay for the big expensive ticket, you can still see it, which is why we still get the, the, the free of charge uh, yes. entry. But why you're saying about Dublin being considered a bit of a backwater. It was the second city of what was then referred to as the empire. Um, had he a particular connection with Ireland? and Vaughan or do we know why he chose the National Gallery of Ireland? No and I did have you know a a sort of good look at it too because I was kind of thinking maybe there was something Mm. of a connection with Turner but there isn't even with Turner really with Dublin Scotland a lot more so Turner visited there a few times but Turner never came to Ireland but I did find a Ruskin um, a piece on the provinces and he did say that the provinces could um, particularly their young artists Mm. could learn a lot from looking at the drawings and watercolours of Turner. So I think they were kind of thinking it as a sort of broader British Isles education. Yeah, and the provinces now would... Yeah, <laughs> that's how they called it. Yeah, that's how they yeah, called yeah, of course. It. Yeah, yeah. They had the home counties and the provinces. Exactly. And at that time, Ireland would have been considered precisely that mm-hmm. uh, by those in, in higher society in Britain, for sure. So what exactly do we get on display? Do we get to see the entire collection on an annual basis? Yeah, and I, it's an extraordinary thing to think of because, again, when I was Researching it, I was sort of looking at, you know, has it always been on display? Mm. And uh, there's a, a, a sort of press release from 1943 during the emergency and it was still on display that January so it's a lovely element of continuity I think of knowing that it's always going to be there so uh, as far as I know um, they have always got all of them on Mm. display so there's 31 that were from his original bequest and then there's another five that came from people like um, I think Lady Bite might have given one as well Mm. and a few other people like that Uh, so yeah so they're uh, usually stored in this incredible 
incredible chest, very Victorian, very functioning, but also very beautiful. And all the images are slotted in, um, sort of standing up. And as you take out each one, you open it up and then there's a separate little piece of the side that folds out for you to um, sort of prop it up on to look at it. So there's a viewing element to it. Um, I don't think uh, they usually display the cabinet, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> but there are photographs of it that you can have a look at. And, and I guess that stipulation regarding light that has to do with the fact that these are watercolours. Yeah, so there was a famous kind of an account coming after the Great Exhibition of 1851, which again is one of those moments of that kind of connection between art, culture and the general public. Um, and they realised that some of the watercolours that had been on display just for that one summer, of course the Crystal Palace was made of glass, so it didn't help, uh, that the rose colours and the blue colours were almost entirely gone and they were just left with the browns. So that means that, you know, from that time onwards and Ruskin was a real exponent of this too they worried about watercolours so they needed to be sure that they were stored somewhere out of sunlight so when they were originally displayed in Dublin of course they were in the Dargan Wing which mm. was you know open to the light now of course since the 1990s there's a purpose built prints and drawings exhibition space so they don't really have to worry about it anymore but because it's part of the original bequest that it's yeah. only January and that it's always free I think it's nice that they keep it the same way all right. Let us tweet some of the images that we're going to speak about, as is our want and often when you're in with us, Jess. Mm-hmm. Um, at RTE Arena, if you want to look at the images that Jessica Fahey is speaking to us about. Uh, I first of all have put up the Westgate Canterbury, uh, one of the Turner watercolours. And, and very a very clean Turner <laughs> from what we expect, which we certainly will get later on. So maybe you describe this work to me. And this is a very early uh, Turner, is it? Yeah, so... <clears throat> Um, what we're looking at here is the uh, tower gate. So we're actually seeing it from the side. It's actually two towers then with a sort of arch in the middle mm. that uh, would be an entrance into Canterbury. Um, and that's towering over kind of, I think, almost humorously and um, this really run down little uh, hovel that's pressed up against the main walls of the city technically on the outside of the city but on the river um, and then just going over the bridge there's this little carriage uh, a very elegant kind of uh, Georgian looking carriage mm. so for Turner as a young artist he was initially sort of self-trained his father uh, was very famously a, a barber and wig maker who would display his son's artworks and then early on Turner went to study and train a little bit with architectural draftsmen, including uh, Thomas Malton, who is my, his brother James Malton's better known in Ireland because he did all of mm. those scenes of Dublin uh, around the 1790s. So the earlier style, as we can see in this image, is much more tightly handled, as you mentioned, much more detailed, much more crisp and clean. And initially, really, Turner is this sort of artist. He's more of a, a sort of topographical draftsman. Mm. Um, and that changes, of course, very dramatically. And we can see all of that change in this exhibition, which is what makes it so great. All right. Well, let's let's move uh, a bit further up then the chronology uh, to Beech Trees at Norbury Park uh, at RTE Arena. Again, if you want to see this, not quite in the impressionistic style that we associate with him later on, but we're starting to move 
in that direction in, in this. And maybe that's because of the trees in the background as much as it is about the trees in the front, Jessica. Yeah, so there is still a lot of detail, but you can see now it's painterly. Mm. So rather than just relying on line, there's points in this where it is clearly just paint. And that makes a big difference in terms of how we sort of analyse it stylistically. So we know that, um, you know, Turner... Uh, is being influenced at this time by going to see great collections of art in places like Norbury Park that we're witnessing here. Uh, and um, Lord Locke of Norbury Park had works by Claude Lorraine, who was one of Turner's greatest influences. Um, and then other sort of um, influences that we then see at this point too are the various kind of theories and ideas from mm. romantics around the um, need to be truthful to nature and this sort of glory in just something as simple as a great big beech tree. Yeah, because Ruskin, it is, I think, speaking of this particular painting, talked about uh, he lauded Turner for the truth to nature. But we're not talking about, oh, all the details are right. We are talking about something a little bit more philosophical when he says truth to nature, aren't we? Absolutely, because there's a bit of a contradiction in Ruskin as well, because he does admit that it's fine to exaggerate. So in, <laughs> yeah. in this exact this drawing, you can see two tiny, tiny little figures if you look in very, mm. very closely at the right hand side of the base of the tree at the front, um, which I doubt, you know, they could be very far away. They're kind of father's head joke. Are they very small or very far away? Um, but it is again to make it look more dramatic. But what Ruskin said was that the idea was kind of coming from a Christian basis, that who are we as artists to um, improve upon God and God created yeah. nature whereas the re Renaissance artists saw anything you know on this earth must have a perfect ideal which kind of comes from Neoplatonic thought so there's a very different mm. idea going on there so the romantics tuned into this as well and were more interested in and that kind of truth to But nature. it also strikes me you know we often talk about in, in literature never let the truth get in the way of a good story but it would seem never let the truth get in the way of a good painting could equally absolutely, be said absolutely. you do what's right for the painting it mightn't be realistic truth but there's a, a kind of another kind of truth yeah and that's that spot on for there. Turner yeah. yeah he did exactly that let yeah. us let us uh, move a bit further on then to Shakespeare's cliff uh, Dover at RTE Arena and is this a, a direct reference to um, Shakespeare and King Lear and the, yeah. the, the cliffs of Dover absolutely yeah so uh, that's where the cliff got its name so it's not Turner giving it that name it was locally known as that from one, the time yeah, of Shakespeare on. and one thing that really strikes me with this it's very hard to paint white. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the white cliffs of Dover. He paints white here. Yeah. He, you see, the thing that's so interesting, I think, about Turner and particularly that you see in this mm. exhibition is that he starts off being kind of more interested in detail and topographical detail. And over time, he becomes more interested, particularly in his watercolours, I think, in technique and in how you use technique to do things like that, like to have the, you know, white mm. as a presence here rather than as an empty space. Yeah. Um, and and he also then kind of uses, you know, different ways of using uh, particularly watercolour for atmospheric elements like that kind of cloud coming in. But this, again, is one of those slightly exaggerated things Like this cliff is 350 feet tall. Uh, so it's huge. Um, but he actually exaggerates the size again. Yeah, the boat in the in the foreground it's here tiny. Is, is tiny. And yeah. actually the boat's too small for the size of the figures, not yeah. too far along the shore as well. So there's definitely an element of kind of, you know, artistic liberty, I suppose, going yeah, on again, there. Again, we're back to that thing of, you know, the truth that you're telling may not be exactly the facts. Exactly It's, it's something that. else that we're yes, looking for. Yeah. Plus it looks different now because a lot of it's eroded. Yeah. Which is a really interesting thing when you look 
look back on these kind of topographical views that we're not able to see the same things anymore because, you know, they've been uh, swept out to the sea in this case. All right. Um, I'm going to a ship against uh, the Muse Stone now. We're, mm. we're into, I suppose, maybe the Turner. When I think Turner, I think something much closer to this. Very atmospheric. Maybe you describe the work first, first of all, at RTE Arena, if you want to look at the image. Yes. So this was part of a project, actually, that he was working with an engraver. And the idea was to show scenes from the southwest coast of England. And Turner, at this point, is interested in the dramatic and particularly, as we would call it, the romantic sublime. Mm. So what we have here is a ship in a very perilous situation, very close to this uh, rocky outcrop that was known as mm. the Muse Stone that was known for taking many ships down and you know many people lost their life as a consequence of this stone not that far to the right in reality is the coast so if you didn't quite get around this rock you're then shipwrecked on the shore as well so it was a very dangerous little part of Plymouth Sound um, so Turner particularly picks this for that reason because he knows that people like these kind yes. of exciting dramatic dangerous scenes and this was going to be part of a publication so again something that would appeal to the public um, so they wanted they kind of wanted heightened drama uh, more so than just pretty views at this point The other thing uh, again and this comes up year after year and every time I see the paintings I, you still go are they really watercolours you know because you look at them and you think that that looks like an oil painting it doesn't look the like a watercolour in particular yeah yeah, yeah. and it, by this stage he has um, developed his technique one of the things that we know he did was he would dip the whole sheet in uh, wet watercolour first and then he would actually use he'd one particularly long thumbnail that he would use to scratch away in certain points and then that would roughen up the paper to then allow it to soak in different parts or he'd just leave it bare so I think where the water sprays mm. in certain parts, it's actually him scraping away rather than adding in. I, I, I mean, you, you can only wonder how many pieces of watercolour on paper were lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from that little bit of scraping away. Exactly. But I mean, he was so prolific, you know, yeah, extraordinary yeah. prolific. There's something like 30,000 pieces that he ended up donating to the British state in his bequest. So, I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Event. Um, let's move to Turner uh, Ostend Harbour. Uh, mm. And again, I, I, I'm, look, I'm interested in this one because, again, it's it's a sea v- a v- a vision or a seascape, rather, at RTE Arena, if you want to have a look at it. It's much calmer than the one we've just been looking at but the the light here is what's really noticeable and the sky Yes, and this is what Turner, of course, is known for mm. and that famous story that he told uh, or that was said of him that he said his last words were the uh, sun is God um, mm. and that's the actually the title of the other Turner exhibition on the National Gallery at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But what it really is for Turner is his uh, sort of homage to Claude Lorraine who I already mentioned, yeah. the 17th century French artist because he was one of the first to start painting the light source, particularly the sun, within the canvas so that the lights coming out from the canvas rather than it being lit from behind the viewer or behind the painter if you know what I mean so this makes it much more um, engaging it draws you in it's eye catching but Turner over time just becomes obsessed Mm. with light and obsessed with light effects through clouds and he does this extraordinarily as we can see here in watercolour but even in oils it's incredible One final uh, image that I'll tweet then Mm -hmm. San Pietro di Castello at sunrise If you didn't know better, you'd say this was an impressionist. It really is kind of hazy and shady and 
you can barely make out what you're, what's been painted here at all. And in fact, it was misidentified as another church for a very long time too because it's so indistinct. But this is where Turner becomes, you know, so interesting within mm. the history of art because here he is doing something that we do associate with the Impressionists. This looks a little bit like the technique of Monet's Impression Sunrise, yeah. you know, which is a good 40, you know, or almost 40 years later. So here, it, it's that later part of his career, he becomes much more of a purely optical painter He's interested in just recording things very quickly in this very skilled, um, almost like shorthand form of painting. And we know from people who witnessed him paint say that it started as a blob and then from there he would develop it into a recognisable object or location. And this led to a lot of uh, cartoons about him where he's holding a mop mm. and putting it into a bucket of yellow paint because they didn't really <laughs> get it in the yeah. 1840s, I suppose for really, this, this exhibition is, is for many people it's kind of a, a an annual pilgrimage almost. Yeah. It's part of a routine, a January routine. Is that for you? It is. And then every time I, I get drawn to a different one based on yeah. either whatever I'm interested or researching at the time or, or whatever good perhaps or bad my your Christmas day. has been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> how hungover I am well, in January. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Jess, thanks for coming in. It's a happy Jess. Christmas to you. Happy and Christmas. enjoy the, the Turner when you get to see it. That's uh, the Turner's work. Turner, the Henry Vaughan Bequest on display at the National Gallery for the month of January from the 1st through until the end. Nationalgallery.ie for full details.